Hello, listeners. We here at the Foxhole Podcast are so grateful for your continued support and listens. Because we love you, we've made you a special discount code for our upcoming play, The Ninth Door. The discount code ROGER takes $10 off the $20 ticket price. So remember, if you're in LA this October, come by The Ninth Door and remember that discount code ROGER. to Saddam's palace uh, within the first two days of being there um, we were like eating in these in these at this big ass buffet it was like all oh, you can eat buffet I, we went from eating MREs every day not showering for eight days straight living in this dusty ass dirty ass village with water that we couldn't even drink we had to bring our own bottled water over to Saddam's palace, eating at big ass buffets, swimming in Saddam's swimming pool. I didn't think he'd mind at the time. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and like rubbing shoulders with, you know, people on a much higher level pay grade than me. And my platoon sergeant was like, make sure you go there, you handle your business and you come right back. I was like, yes, that's Sergeant. He was like, no, 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 no. I mean, right back. I was like, yes, that's Sergeant, no problem. So we get there, we testify in Iraqi court, and then we go back to Saddam's palace. And every day we go down to the flight deck to check if there's an outgoing flight. Um, do you guys have Please God, not today. Please God, not today. You guys got any flights going back to Fallujah? They'd be like, not today. We'd be like, oh, darn, oh, that's too bad. Oh, that's too bad, man. Guess I'll go back uh, to the yeah. palace, bro. I gotta, I gotta go hang out by that pool site again, man. This is rough business, man. Right, right. So we go back to the pool, and man, we'd just be swimming in the swimming pool every single day while we're out there. And it's crazy. They had a motherfucking Burger King out there. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. Man, Burger King did not miss an opportunity to capitalize on that. Hell so, no. Get that wow. Whoppers. Yeah. Whoppers, the, 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 Spreading the spreading the propaganda of capitalism right there, man. Hell yeah. Get yourself a whopper a, with cheese, baby. A haji whopper with cheese. It was not that bad. Yeah. Not that bad. Yeah. And uh they had um it was crazy because um uh, not Ben Affleck. Was it Ben Affleck? There was a movie called The Green Zone. Matt Damon, I think. With Matt yeah. Damon. Matt Damon? Matt Damon, yeah. yeah. There's a scene where he is talking to somebody, I believe, in the CIA or something like that. And they're sitting by a poolside and Matt Damon is uh, still in um, all of his uh, flak jacket and stuff like that, sharing the intelligence with his uh, with his intelligence officer and stuff like that. That was actually shot on scene in Iraq at the same swimming pool that I was at while I was out there in Baghdad. So it was a pretty crazy experience. It was like a a little four or five day vacation that was well received. Well received. It was crazy being able to just like walk around the palace and see like the extravagant artwork that was painted on the ceilings and everything. It, yeah. it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Wow. So 
It's definitely life goals. I got to get my, my, my shit together so I can get a palace. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I imagine right. not many people can say they did R and R and Saddam's palace. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, I, I was looking for his bedroom, yeah. but I think like the, uh, some general or something like uh, that had already taken that, but I let, I let him have it. It's all good. What, what did you feel personally when you saw, when you, we saw that you, we captured Saddam and, and, uh, what did you feel? Did you feel any sort of accomplishment, sense of accomplishment, or did you? Because obviously, liberating Iraq and having, um, you know, I just remember when that statue fell. You know, what when the first couple of years, basically, um, well, first couple mm-hmm. of days, really. Um, did you feel any sorts of a sort of accomplishment when they when they captured Saddam? Be honest with you. Um, I don't know if I had joined yet. So, I mean, I was proud. I was proud of our um, of our military and our government for uh, all the hours and man and man hours and effort that I went into capturing that man. I was proud that they, you know, they got the uh, what was he like the ace of spades or something like that. Yeah, uh, I, I was so happy for them. But my emotional connection wasn't quite there yet because I hadn't served yet. You know, it's a different type of feeling you get when you actually serve in comparison to um, uh, times before you served, right? Like I had more of an emotional connection when we caught um, Osama bin Laden. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I do vividly remember uh, when I first found out that we had caught um, Osama bin Laden, I was actually on a date uh with this uh, young lady and the date was eh, you know it was all right but um i remember getting a, a phone call from my mom and i was like oh you know i can't answer this can't answer my you talk to my mom on a date that's a bad look so i sent <laughs> yeah. it to voicemail and as soon as the date was over i called her right back i was like hey mom how's it going is everything okay and she was like we got him i was like what are you talking about it's like they caught Osama bin Laden. I was like, "Are you serious?" So uh, she was actually the first person that told me. Uh, I'm sure it was all over the news at the time, uh, but mm-hmm. I happened to be out and about on a date uh, when the news broke. Uh, so it was—I'll never forget that. Uh, you know, my mom was the one that broke the news to me, so that was pretty pretty interesting. That's yeah. true, man. Did you talk to any of your guys after that that you were um, <clears throat> deployed with over there? Yeah, at the time, uh, social media was still going pretty strong. Um, uh, so people were posting it all over Facebook and whatnot. And we were texting each We started texting each other. So it felt really good to know that a lot of the work that we had done wasn't necessarily in vain. Um, mm-hmm. And then um, when uh, more details came out about the raid that, uh, that was done by the SEALs, uh, when you start seeing like all the equipment that they had and the helicopter they were using... I was like, damn, yeah. it must be nice. I want MVGs like yeah. that because I remember the MVGs that we had <laughs> while we were in there. It's just like those um, mono type of one uh, one MVG covering the one eye and like yeah. all the high-speed gear that they had. I was like, damn, <laughs> that's what it's like to be a tier one operator, right? Yeah, and right. They had freaking everything. And they showing like their rifle setup and everything. I was like, dang, must be nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was it was really interesting to, to, you know, you always watch document, or at least I would watch documentaries on it and whatnot, and seeing like all the intel that they gathered while they are there, like picking up all those hard drives and stuff like that, and 
how it's just like a, a big honeypot of, you know, bad guy intel. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to, to find out how he was like in, what was he in, like uh, Pakistan? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So it really made me think about Vietnam, mm. be honest with you, uh, because, you know, here we are in Afghanistan looking for the Taliban and all of its leadership. And the number one guy is not even in the country. He's in Pakistan, right? So obviously I wasn't in Nam, but based on like all the documentaries that I watched and everything, it was interesting how um, the the NVA had a lot of their caches in like Cam. I think it was like was it Laos or Cambodia, if not both, like some of the neighboring countries and stuff like that, and how our um, tier one operators and all of our um, you know A teams and seals and stuff like that and green berets they would like secretly cross the border to destroy a lot of those caches like weapons and food and stuff like that that was being used for the nba so it was crazy to see how like different era but same tactics same technique you know right hide all your stuff where they're not supposed to be and how we still go over there under the radar, you know? So mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting to see how that all, it all, it's, it stays the same. Different different playground, but, you know, mm-hmm. still the same rules. It's funny talking to talking to Vietnam vets sometimes too and how they how they point out the fact that, uh, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll, I, think I, I think I brought up once that, you know, you know, how tactics have changed and how, you know, you know, we used to do trench warfare. Now, you know, we kind of stay away from, and it's like no, if you it, it 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 all it all depends on the playground, right? It all depends on the the area in which you're operating, and like if if it calls for trench warfare, then that's what it's going to be, right? And and a lot of things may change, but uh, as far as warfare goes, it's still as you know, it's still as sort of ever changing and fluid as it always has been. Um, and uh, it's it's interesting to see the correlations between Afghanistan and um, in Vietnam there, especially because of, you know, just the length of the war and the type, I mean, how, how we're pulling out, you know, is, is, is fairly similar. Um, but, um, take us to, uh, yeah, 2008. And when you got to Afghanistan and what that, uh, what that did to you, were you prepared for it? Were, um, um, obviously coming from Iraq, going to Afghanistan is a whole new beast. And I know Marcus had a question about that as well. Um, but uh, do, what was that like? Uh, were you still with two seven? Um, and what um, what kind of things did you take away from just your first week of being there? Uh, yeah, so Afghanistan was. Um, I have mixed emotions about it. To be honest with you. Like when I first got there, oh, it was such a rush. It it felt so good to be back in a combat zone, like because I was still amped up. Oh, I would say still amped up, but like I remember what Iraq was like. And I was like, fuck yeah, here we are, a whole nother country. Let's do it. And as soon as I got in that MRAP, so I was like the the lead driver for our convoy and I was driving what's called an MRAP. It's a um, uh, mine-resistant um, armored personnel carrier. I think that's what it stands for. But it's a, a vehicle that's designed to specifically take the blast of an IED and keep its occupants uh, uh, safe in comparison to like a Humvee um, that would not 
take that energy from a blast quite as well. So I remember the first time we were driving outside the wire and it was just like a rush of energy. I was like, hell yeah, we're back. Let's, let's do this. Um, and the first time we went outside the wire, uh, we were zeroing our, our crew served weapons. Um, so a lot of things were going on, obviously above my pay grade. So typically like when you get to a combat zone, crew serve weapons are something that gets recycled onto the next unit. So for instance, uh, when we got to Iraq, the uh, 240 Bravos, the Mark 19s, the 50 cal machine guns, those were all given to us by the unit that was there before. All of the small arms, like a M16s and stuff like that, all of our pistols, M9s, those were weapons that came from your battalion and stayed with your battalion. Now, when we got to Afghanistan, Afghanistan, our deployment to Afghanistan was apparently such a big deal that all of our crew serve weapons were straight out the, the fucking box. You know, like we were wiping down like packing grease, wiping that stuff yeah. off. Like the Marine Corps, the military was like, you guys, because we were the first um, Marine Corps battalion in Afghanistan in several years. So when we went there, like we literally, we didn't have shit. Like as far as like bases were concerned, mm -hmm. we we had to rent a piece of a a. a of, we had to rent a section of a, a British base when we first got there to get started. Mm -hmm. And once we got to that portion of the British base, uh, our, our company started to push out and create uh, these forward observation bases. So like when we're in Iraq, we start off at Camp Fallujah, right? And then from Camp Fallujah, we pushed out to a FOB that was already established from the army and had been there for years. So these FOBs, these forward observation bases in Iraq were well-established, already operational. Um, the army unit moved out, our Marine Corps unit moved in. We were in Afghanistan. We literally had no FOBs, period. So we, we went out there and we had like HESCO barriers. So for people that are listening that are unfamiliar with HESCO barriers, they're essentially like a... a a metal box, like kind of like a chain link box with cloth lining the the outer, the, the inside of it filled with dirt. And you would make just like a whole row of those to create like a, a, a wall and you can stack them higher and you would set up like your perimeter with that. Um, we had HESCO barriers that were empty, you know, hadn't even put any dirt in them yet. And we would just set those up and we didn't even have like a tractor that was flown into the country yet to fill them. So we would like set up the wall, but there are like empty HESCO barriers. There was nothing but like a chain link fence with like uh, mm -hmm. a just cloth. So we're, we're kind of like bluffing, you know what I mean? We send Marines out there with, with E-tools to try to fill them up, but you know, to fill up one HESCO barrier with some E-tools, <laughs> to fill up one barrier is going to take you, like, yeah. forever, right? That's yeah. like a E2, E3 job, right? Just keep right. them busy. So we literally didn't have anything out there. Um, and that deployment was was rough. Like, 
Now, when I say I have mixed emotions about it is because in my first deployment to Iraq or my first deployment that was in Iraq, um, I was a regular infantry rifleman doing foot patrols, walking around, looking for bad guys, having firefights on a regular basis, um, did quite a bit of fighting. Um, on my second deployment, which was um, Afghanistan in 2008, I volunteered for what was called the Jump Platoon. So the Jump Platoon, we were pretty much like the uh, personal security detail for the battalion commander and battalion sergeant major. So wherever they went, we went and provided security for them, as well as transported them there. If um, they were, if we we're they're being transported via um, like a, a motorcade or a um, convoy. Um, so I volunteered for that because a buddy of mine was in that platoon already, and he kind of like sold me on it. He was like, "Dude, you got to join this platoon. You're gonna be with the battalion commander all the time and the battalion sergeant major. Nobody's gonna fuck with you. You know, if you have a staff sergeant or an officer." try to, you know, mess with you and be like, who's your platoon sergeant? You could say shit like <laughs> battalion commander. And he'd be like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, never mind. Carry on as you were, Marine. So I was like, fuck yeah, nobody's going to fuck with me. Yeah, let me join that platoon. So I ended up joining them. And it was a great opportunity, great experience. But I felt bad because I ended up leaving um, my, uh, my Marines and Echo Company. And the Afghanistan deployment was so hard. And it was so much fighting and we took so many casualties that I felt bad because I felt like I, I left them when they needed me the most to get a, a cush position. You know what I mean? A comfortable position. Like the Taliban in Afghanistan, these dudes were fucking on another level because you know how like in America, um, corn is like the number one crop grown. And if you drive through some places in the Midwest, you see like cornfield after cornfield everywhere yeah. on both sides of the mm -hmm. highway. That's how it is in Afghanistan with heroin, with poppy. Poppies. Yeah, poppy. So you yeah. see poppy mm -hmm. fields everywhere. It's crazy. You drive down like through some villages, poppy field after poppy field after poppy field. And if it wasn't a poppy field, it was a marijuana field, which is another trippy story. But anyways... Uh, imagine walking through a marijuana field with your battalion sergeant major right behind you and like, fuck, I, I really <laughs> want to pick this bud right now. But <laughs> you're like, you're like thinking so, about all, all the money signs. You're like, damn, that would be, that's man, like $10,000 right there, bro. <laughs> hell yeah. And our battalion sergeant major, he's like a conservative Christian, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke. And when we got yeah. to the, we walked through this big ass marijuana field. And uh, my battalion sergeant major was like, hey, Saunders, is that marijuana? <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I, be I believe that I was, was, uh, that was <laughs> marijuana right there, right? Is that correct? I was like, I, I, I think it was. I, believe I, so, sure. I, <laughs> yeah. I have Based no experience with that, that sir. So <laughs> right. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> Based on the pictures that I've seen in the past, it, it kind of looked like that. Damn right? hippies. <laughs> right. right. But the um, the Taliban, and which is crazy because there's so much heroin out there, right? And the way it works is like the local farmers out there in, in, in Afghanistan, they're not Taliban. They're like legit just farmers. And they know that if they grow this poppy, the Taliban will turn around and, and buy the, the, the black tar heroin from them. So they know that there's a market for it and they can feed their feed their family. So, you know, these farmers, they don't have 
they're they're not political or anything like that. They're not all about um, Sharia law and all this stuff. At least the majority of them, to my knowledge, they just want to grow this product, sell it, and provide for their family. So that if you think about it, the Taliban are out there fighting this holy war, quote unquote, holy war from the sale of of heroin. The vast majority at the time, the vast majority of the world's heroin came from Afghanistan. Wow. So they would use the sale of heroin to fund their side of the war because at the end of the day, they still have to pay their troops. You know, They still have to buy bullets, machine guns, mortars, munitions, food, medical supplies. They still have to fund. They need funding for their side of the war. So they're fighting this holy war by selling heroin. Like... What the fuck is that all Compromising about? your uh, morals, yeah. And it was crazy because some of them would straight up be high off this smack. And, you know, you're shooting these guys and they're not dying because they're not feeling it right away. Because, you know, the 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 key ingredient to like morphine and or like um, these pain-killing drugs that hospital uses is actually like, you know, medical-grade fucking heroin. Yeah. So yeah, like shooting these guys and killing these yeah. guys, it was it was a challenge, you know, because you shoot them yeah. up in the torso and they they still be alive until you you know you put one in their fucking head. <clears throat> but yeah, yeah, Afghanistan was was rough. Um, we ended up taking a lot of casualties during that deployment to the point where we were on the verge of being um, deemed combat ineffective. So the Marine Corps had to um, put out a call for volunteers from other battalions to come give us combat resupplies as far as like volunteers to come in and fill the spot of all the Marines that were injured or killed in action so we can still be uh, combat effective out there. And it, it was like a blessing and a curse. It was like uh, mixed emotions about how I felt about, about that depart, uh, deployment because being with the battalion commander and battalion sergeant major, I was able to see our entire area of operation, right? Had I stayed with um, Echo Company, I would have been uh, at that one FOB, at that one forward observation base, doing foot patrols in the local area, which I wish I did. But I would have only been able to see that one area, right? Being with the battalion commander and battalion sergeant major, I was going from this fob to that fob to another fob and seeing the big picture, you know what I mean? Seeing what was really happening and talking to some decision makers and stuff like small talk and just getting information like, why are we here? What are we doing? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? So it was really eye-opening. And I, I was thankful that I was able to, you know, see and experience things that someone on at my pay grade probably wouldn't normally have gotten to experience. But mm-hmm. I still feel bad because when I was back at the base, when one of my buddies would get wounded, they would come back to that British base to go to the hospital for a little bit. And here I here I am in a fucking air conditioned tent. Mm-hmm. And my buddy comes back because he got shrapnel from a grenade to the inside of his thigh. You know? It, it makes me feel like 
you know, what the fuck am I doing here? And like, when my friend needs mm-hmm. me the, the most, I'm up here enjoying um, being with the battalion commander, you know. I should have yeah. stayed with my guys. But, sure. I don't know. It was mixed emotions, but yeah. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was another great, great deployment. And it was crazy, like, how poor the people were out there. Like, when I went to Iraq, mm-hmm. I thought those people were poor. But the people in Afghanistan, holy shit. Like, like Iraq, the difference between Iraq and Afghanistan, at least the areas where I was in, like Iraq was bad because it was predominantly farmland and electricity was provided for the government like sporadically throughout the day. And a lot of the households had to have like a little um, gasoline or diesel generator to Mm -hmm. um, have electricity for the house for the times that the government wasn't providing for it, right? And they would literally be out there raising chickens and cows and all that stuff. Now, when I got to Afghanistan, I was like, holy shit, these dudes are out here making bricks out of mud and straw, like like the biblical days, and mixing it with their feet and leaving these uh, bricks of mud and straw out to dry in the sun. And with almost no electricity and no indoor plumbing, like these people are like super poor. Yeah. So, and living in biblical times, man, and we go back to that, and it's like you, uh, we wonder why it's not just an easy like pull out, get out, give them, give them our train, train them up, you know, train up the Afghan national forces and let them protect their own country it's easier said than done, you know, and we talked about this in a previous episode, but like, this is, this is something the world has to understand is like, there's a reason Afghanistan hasn't been conquered. You know, there's a reason it hasn't been, are you ever going to eradicate the Taliban out of there? No, because when you cut off one head of the snake, you know, six more pop up, you're always going to offend some lineage and some tribe to where they're going to have vengeance because that's what they remembered. They don't have access to the modern amenities and modern technology like we do. You know, they've had to adapt and overcome living in the mountains or living in the really high desert, the low desert. You know, the it's just um, it's really fascinating to hear um, your reaction to it and then just, you know, really drive home to the listeners, especially like this is not something that is it's not an easy play playground. You know, this is not an easy playing field by which to, um, you can't just go in there and say, all right, all all the women are going to vote now. And, uh, we're going to introduce capitalism and we're going to instill our democracy. That's great on paper, but putting that into action into a people who have learned to adapt with what they have with very little, um, for thousands of years who were living in, in biblical times, you know, in these huts and stuff. Uh, it's a lot easier said than done. And that's why the hearts and minds, I wanted to ask you about that too. As far as your uh, your job with the battalion commander, because I had a job at the very tail end of, of my Navy career that was, um, you know, I knew I was getting out. And so I got attached to the, we had the master chief of our, he was basically the master chief of our type of aircraft. So he was like the head master chief came in to do like an inspection and and he was there i got to be his like personal duty driver for like the week he was here um it was amazing you know it really was it was like the greatest like little sick job i had to get up at two in the morning and drive into beef bowl and 
do some other uh, un, un, do some other unsavory tasks that I won't mention. But um, um, but uh, yeah, having that perspective really, it really when you can peek behind the curtain and see how the sausage is made a little bit, um, it kind of gives you a new perspective on things. So if you can talk about this, was this something when you saw? with the battalion commander, these decisions, these high ranking officials making these decisions, was it largely based on hearts and minds or was there like a strategic, were they kind of figuring it out as they went along or was there like a strategic, like, this is, this is how we're going to operate right now. This is the best thing for our, for the people of Afghanistan, but also <clears throat> our troops to keep them in, in, uh, in the safest, uh, operating area possible. Yeah. I'd have to say, um, the battalion commander that we have for our Afghanistan deployment was one of the uh, most intellectual and wise uh, Marines that I ever served with. And I'm not saying that to, you know, kiss ass. I can't gain <laughs> any rank right now. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I thought that the way he approached it was, was very, very, very wise. So you remember I was telling you that, um, there's a lot of poppy farmers out there, and these were regular farmers that weren't Taliban. They're just trying to mm-hmm. feed their family, right? So one of the things that he tried to do was um, defeat the enemy while still winning the hearts and minds of the locals. So initially, we started to burn the poppy fields. Um, when it comes to war, one way to, to fight your enemy um, is, you know, obviously, you know, fight them and kill them, right? But another way is to also disrupt their funding, right? And that's been something that's happened through all wars. Try to disrupt your enemy's funding. If they can't buy ammunition, if they can't, you know, pay their troops and make them lose, they'll end up losing morale because they're not getting paid. It's a very effective and necessary um, tech, or, or technique or not technique, but uh, approach to to fighting. So we started uh, burning their poppy fields, but, you know, we we had to make sure that we weren't pissing off the local populace. We didn't want these farmers to end up turning on Mm. us, right? Yeah. So what we started doing was he sent out, um, our battalion commander uh, requested, um, I think they're like geologists, I may be wrong on the terminology, but there are people that the scientists that essentially like sample the, they take soil samples and figure out what crop can best thrive. Pharmacologist, perhaps? What is I'm it? Not sure, but possibly, yeah. I don't possibly. Know. That, that sounds fancy. I'll roll with that. That might that's be pharmaceutical. Cool. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a so, scientist, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. That's what I we'll thought it was, it, but, yeah. you know, hey, I'm not here to judge anybody. <laughs> so the, he essentially had some scientists come out, take soil samples to figure out what plants could thrive in that area, right? So as it turns out, uh, corn, no, I'm sorry, wheat, wheat would thrive very, very well. So what we started doing was we started getting uh, wheat grain um, and distributing it uh, to the farmers, so instead of just destroying their crop, we gave them an alternative. You know, you can continue to farm, but instead of growing this one product, start growing this other product. And then there will be a market for that down in the marketplace. You can sell your wheat. People can make bread, um, this, that, and the other. 
So it helped us to win the hearts and minds of the locals. You know, um, the, the locals were able to see that we weren't here to disrupt their lifestyle. We weren't there to fight them. We were there to fight the Taliban. And we have no beef, no quarrels with the local farmers. Um, if anything, we're here to help you and also take the lithium in the mountains. However, um, I thought that that was um, a really, really great approach. And it was interesting, like years after I got out of the Marine Corps, I was scrolling through uh, some stuff, some articles online, and I saw a picture of a young Marine on a foot patrol walking through a huge wheat field. Wow. And I can't explain how good that made me feel to see that, you know, the efforts that we put in back in 2008, to see photos of these wheat fields fully grown now, you know, it's like the seeds that we planted had had, uh, had harvested, you know, so to speak. Mm. So it's, it's good to see. It was interesting to see how how the battalion commander um, uh, handled that that aspect of the war, as far as mm. disrupted disrupting funding from the Taliban while still um, allowing the locals to to have some type of livelihood. You know, I thought that was brilliant. It's so simple, but yeah, you know, I wouldn't have thought of it. I'd have been like, let's start dropping more bombs. Fuck it, you know. Yeah. But. Wow. You know, for for every Taliban member that you kill with these bombs, you know, you create three or four more Taliban yeah. members. Right. Mm. Wow. It's interesting that you mentioned the uh, the lithium in the mountains. I recently watched a video that was talking about how Afghanistan sitting on top of uh, an estimated three trillion dollars worth of mineral wealth, and that was something I never knew before. But the mm-hmm. um, question I have. Uh, you've answered a bit of it, but I'm wondering if there's any any more uh, specifics. Was there? Uh, you have the unique experience of fighting in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and I'm curious: were there any uh, besides the stuff you've already mentioned about um, the fobs and such? Was were there any other major or minor uh, differences in those two theaters? Uh, yeah, so I say before going to Iraq, um, my uh, the stereotype that I thought about Iraq was uh, it's going to be the Middle East. There's going to be camels everywhere, a bunch of desert, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. And Iraq was nothing like that, you know. Um, the area that I was in was predominantly farmland. So it's palm trees everywhere, mm. beautiful Euphrates River, lots of um, growth and vegetation. Um, when I went to Baghdad, it's an ancient place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, a well-established area. You know, if you go into mm. Baghdad, there's more of an urban environment. Um, I mean, just like America, right? America, you can go to different states that would be completely different than the other, right? So. Mm-hmm. You can go to New York and have this huge urban environment and then go down to um, Alabama and have like a whole bunch of farmland. Right. Same thing with Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have Baghdad, which is all urban and then Karma and Zidon and stuff like that. These are more farmland. So it it wasn't anything like what I um, anticipated 
And I was like, man, this place is beautiful, right? Mm. And then when I got to Afghanistan, that was exactly what the stereotype was going to be, what I thought it was going to be like. It was all desert, mountains, rocks, fucking camels. It was like the devil's armpit, right? That place was fucking mm. horrible. No, no disrespect to any Afghan Americans out there, but the area that I was predominantly in was was pretty underdeveloped and yeah. very, very rough. Um, and it was interesting because we would drive from uh, one fob to the next, right? Um, mm-hmm. And we would drive through miles and miles of desert and uh, like rocky terrain and nothing is there. It just looks horrible. And then you go up the side of this mountain and then you get to the top of the mountain. And then as you come, are coming down, you see like this village that's down in the um, the crest of a, of, a, of a mountain that's like really, really green. And it was just mm. beautiful to have like, to see absolutely nothing out there. And then like this little tiny pocket of uh, a flourishing little village. Mm. So Afghanistan was extremely underdeveloped. Uh, the education system is just like horrendous down there because of the Taliban, um, mm. which is something that's interesting. I actually, uh, when I got back to the States, um, I started uh, just going down a rabbit hole with Google searches and stuff like that. And I Googled um, um, Afghanistan literacy, literacy rate, right? And mm. according to, I think it was the the one of the CIA's website, the the literacy rate out there was like at at the time I did the Google search, it was like around twenty four to twenty six percent. Wow! So only about a quarter of the populace of the country knew how to read or write. Mm. Mm. Right wow. now, think about that. Here they are fighting a holy war, right? That's supposed to supposed to be based on the teachings of in, in the Quran. But truth be told, it's, it's just, um, you know, these extremi- extremists that misinterpret the Quran and mislead mm-hmm. their followers. So mm-hmm. these people are fighting. And have an ulterior, war. almost having an ulterior Ul- motive because they were wronged mm-hmm. in some way. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So how are you going to fight this holy war that's based on a book that you can't even read? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You can't mm-hmm. even read the Quran and you're out here being an extremist based on his teachings. All right, I'll tell you what, pick it up, read it to me, tell me what it says. Oh, that's crazy. You can't read. Yeah. And so what the Taliban does is they they prey on that uh, uh, on that weakness. They they prey on that uh, ignorance. Yeah. This person can't read or write, can't read the Quran. So they're dependent upon me to teach them what it says. So yeah. I'm going I can skew to, it however I want. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and, and that's dangerous and that's dangerous. Yeah. Now me as a Christian, it really helped me to have a little bit of self-reflection and take my time and read my Bible a little bit more. Cause here I am in America, you know, education isn't something that's being withheld from me like it is for a lot of people in Afghanistan. So what's holding me back from reading my, my religious book. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Right. I don't know if this is, necessarily true but i've heard that there are places uh in the middle east where there have been uh christians jews and muslims in living um harmoniously in the same area and i'm curious if you uh if you encountered 
anything like that. So I, I'm, I've heard about those places too. Um, to my knowledge, um, they would be in some high, uh, right in the top of like some high elevated mountainous areas. Um, but I was in a completely different portion of Afghanistan. So we never really encountered uh, those type of groups. Um, and I, I like that idea. Like I'm very passionate about my religion and I think Christianity is the true religion, just like anybody that um, really loves their faith or is passionate about their faith, always believes that their one faith or their faith is the true one amongst all. Um, but I do like mm-hmm. the idea of being able to um, uh, coexist with each with one another, even though we have different beliefs. Doesn't mean that well, you know, we have to be feuding with one another. We can live harmoniously and learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's sad is, like to my knowledge, the Taliban after we left. Um, uh, Afghanistan would like go into those villages and like just destroy everything and kill everybody in those types of, of villages. Um, and wasn't it was it um, was it ISIS that was going around destroying like all the ancient like statues yeah, and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. As they went after the they went after like the the uh, the Yazidis. Exactly. Who, That's exactly yeah. what I was thinking about the Yazidis. Yeah. They uh, apparently like existed before Christianity, even. So they're mm-hmm. like one of the first established. They were some of the earliest Christians. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it's it, it's crazy, man. It's crazy. Like I don't know how accurate. Well, no, I'm not even gonna say that because know your audience, right? But anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, now that we're now that we're on the subject of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I know faith. You've mentioned faith is really important to you. Um, I'm curious uh, how your experience of war uh, affected your faith. Whether it strengthened it, um, whether there were certain questions you asked yourself that, um, but then were answered and and then strengthened your faith, or how how generally that experience uh, affected you. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think that. First, it's important to to recognize that the Bible or God's teaching doesn't contradict itself, right? So with that being said, I know in the Ten Commandments it says, thou shalt not kill, right? Now, I think that it's important to recognize that there's a difference between killing and murder. And that Mm -hmm. if you're trying to um, get it uh, accurate teaching of scriptures. I think what the the Bible is trying to say when it says "Thou shalt not kill," to my my personal opinion on what it's trying to say is "Thou shalt not commit murder." Now, yeah. what's the difference, right? Um, if if somebody is coming at me with a knife or some type of weapon and I shoot this person in self defense, that's not murder. That's self defense, right? If I go to war for my country and serve my country with honor and fight a, a combatant on the battlefield, that's not murder. You know, that's military service. Right. If I see you with a nicer car than mine and I'm jealousing you and I carjack you and shoot you in the process, that's murder. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if we get into a fight and I stab you, that's murder. So there, there's a difference, right? Yeah, absolutely. So. I don't, and in the Bible, even there's plenty of stories where God has instructed the Israelites to go to war. 
yeah. you know, for certain reasons. Jericho. Mm-hmm. So yeah. exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And even um, the, uh, the Israelites were, you know, with uh, David, David and Goliath when he was a child, you know, right. Uh, the Philistines, they were going to fight the Philistines. So, you know, there is a difference between killing and murder. So it did not bother me while I was in the service that I was in the infantry, you know, uh, fighting mm-hmm. and, you know, getting shot at and shooting at people and things of that nature. It did not mm-hmm. um, uh, interfere with my faith. Uh, now, if anything, it helped me to uh, perceive things in a different way. Um, I had a greater appreciation for Iraq while I was there. Uh, because while I was there, I just kept on thinking of the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, and how King Nebuchadnezzar had built this great city. Um, and Iraq is coincidentally uh, on the land of King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Yeah. Um, now, I'm no historian or um, uh, what you call it. Uh, I'm not an expert in geography. But to my knowledge, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is like only just a small portion of Iraq, right? So it it give like a good comparison. Let's say you have the state of California, right? Um, That would be like modern day Iraq. And King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, kingdom is like Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So Mm. it's a city state. Yeah. So. King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was great at the time, but now Iraq has grown out of that and expanded much more. So while Mm. King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was in that same area, Iraq is a much larger piece of land now, or not piece of land, but much larger country than what it started from. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because um, I would think about how King Nebuchadnezzar, would have engraved on bricks, you know, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, erect this great country, yada, yada, yada. It was like pretty much giving praise to himself. Like, it's because of me that this great city exists. Um, Saddam Hussein actually took that same phrase and removed King Nebuchadnezzar's name and inserted his own name and put that throughout Iraq. Hmm. Wow. And he felt as if he was a direct uh, descendant of King Nebuchadnezzar and carrying on his his work. So wow. I thought that was that was pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. So yeah, that's fascinating. And then you know I would be doing a patrol right next to Euphrates River and just think about all the stories mm. in the Bible that that happened yeah. in this land that I'm now walking in. You know, right. I, to me it was just wow. like an honor to just be there. Yeah. Mm. And understand why why yeah. people have toiled over it for wow. thousands of years, you know, like walking walking the footsteps where there were. I don't know why because that place was a piece of shit. Be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does make you think about that, right? Maybe it was the goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, why yeah. the hell do you yeah. want to put yeah, it was, yeah. right here, bro? It's like desert ass, well, it, freaking hot ass. Because you know, be honest with you, like um, you have to think about it from um, the 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 time right because back then you had yeah, the euphrates well you still have the euphrates river and the tigris and whatnot right and irrigation is wasn't what it is today 
So to be right there near the Tigris and the Euphrates was very huge for the agricultural yeah. industry. So that brings Absolutely. in more money. It brings in traders. So it's going to be um, uh, a very common place for people to uh, travel through as they're making trades for silks and spices and things of that nature. So mm -hmm. I, I get it. You know, it's probably for the for the uh, gold as well. Context. So. Yeah. Context is everything. Absolutely. We may not understand Absolutely. it these days, but that's why those people are so proud. And and um, I just love the fact that you drew back in your your um, your faith and how it's important to you. But how how you explain that really is is phenomenal. And, and um, you know, it's why it's why you made an impact on me. And we're going to get to that now. So, like, I, I I we see that you, you know, you got out, you transitioned, um, whether it be you know, whether you were stated or not, it happened. Right. And, um, it's unfortunate that sometimes our NCOs, our people in leadership are, that's the other thing too, that we got to point out, right. Not everybody, I always say this, not everybody who serves is honorable. The act of service itself is an honorable act. So albeit that guy, that, that Sergeant, who you had was, you know, addicted to drugs and just a piece of shit overall, right? Just kind of a, kind of a bag, bag of shit. Um, you know, even though he was an unhonorable dude and it caught up with him, obviously got separated and all that and busted down his act of service is honorable. Right? So here's, here's where I'm at though. Like I, people need to understand that like not everybody is minding their P's and Q's. You don't get along with everybody. You know, you still have differences and people are going to use the military to their advantage. They're going to be two faced about it, just like in the civilian sector. But what it does teach you is that it, at least in the military, you can't just like, all right, I'm going to retire. I'm, I'm quitting. I'm going to put in my two weeks and freaking go. Nah, don't work like that, bro. You get what you get. And unfortunately, if you're stuck with a bad with your bad leadership or bad NCOs, you kind of just have to do what you can to keep your head down and get to the next, you know, get to the next deployment or, or, or whatever, and, and try to try to make it work for yourself. But, um, that, that act of transitioning, um, you, you said you were uh, about a year with your parents just to kind of decompress and all that. Um, I, I want to ask you like just myself, you, you and the other veterans at the, at the VRC in, um, at Golden West really like kind of paved the way for like how I, would do things and how I kind of operated in this transitional sort of sector, you know, with these younger kids. Now you were, you went in at 26. So when you got out and you were at Golden West, you were um, almost 30. Is that correct? About 31. I had my 30th 31. birthday while I was in Afghanistan. So that was wow. an interesting thing. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So I was about 30, so 30, 31. How was that transition for you and why did you choose why was Golden West, for obvious reasons, but we'll talk about that. Why was Golden West the place where you wanted to uh, uh, continue your education? Uh, so I took about a year just to decompress, um, and I and I stayed at my parents' house for quite some time. Um, and then after living with them for about a year um, and just doing my own thing, I knew that, okay, You've had plenty of time. You need to um, shake this off and you need to do something productive with your life. So I decided I wanted to um, become a police officer. Right. So I actually started the 
hiring process for LAPD uh, while I was um, in my last couple of months of uh, active duty. So LAPD sends recruiters up to the Marine Corps station or Marine Corps base out there in 29 Palms uh, to do recruiting. So I took the, the written exam up there, uh, passed out with flying colors, and then um, came back to the LA area and did the physical fitness exam with them, passed out with flying colors. Um, and then um, I started doing the, the background check with LAPD. And I had a friend of mine that was a police officer for another city, uh, not gonna say which, and he's a he's a detective now, and I asked him. I was letting him know that you know went through the hiring process with LAPD. Do you have any um, any advice for me? He was like, Yeah, just be one hundred percent honest. That's what they're looking for. A lot of times um, they know the answer to a question before they even ask it. They just want to see if you're going to be truthful. So um, through the background investigation, I ended up um, uh, failing because uh, I admitted to using marijuana more than a certain amount of times. Um, so that's ultimately was what disqualified me. Yeah. Um, so I started looking at um, other alternatives to um, LAPD. And I found out that uh, mm -hmm. there's a police academy at Golden West College. And then I started uh, signing up for the police academy at Golden West College. And then I just got so frustrated with um, LAPD turning me down. Um, I was like, man, all this, all this uh, uh, service that I gave to this country and I'm not good enough for you. I was like, man, yeah. fuck this. So yeah. I kind of had like a bad taste in my mouth for law enforcement at the time. So I was like, you know what? Instead of police academy, I'm just going to take regular college courses. So I was already at Golden West College uh, signing up for the police academy. And I asked them, right, let me just take regular classes. So I ended up um, taking college classes there. And it was one of the best decisions that I had ever made in my life because Golden West College is like an extremely veteran friendly school. Yeah. And at that school, um, shout out to Golden West College in the city of Huntington Beach, California. Um, yeah. They have what's called a Veterans Resource Center. So that's pretty much um, for a lack of better terms, like a safe place for veterans to um, hang out, socialize quiet rooms where you could study, um, computers that you could use, printers, they had resources there. Um, it was a, a, a great place for me because I needed to be around um, other veterans. You yeah. know, when I got out, too. I felt as if when I was uh, hanging out with civilians, I couldn't be myself because I would make them feel uncomfortable. Um, yeah. If I was, yeah. you know, being too aggressive or some of the language that I was using or some of the <laughs> stories that I was telling, it would just make them uh, uncomfortable. So when I was hanging out with veterans, I felt like I was around like-minded people and where I could just be myself and let my guard down and not have to worry about, you know, sticking out like a sore thumb. Um, sometimes I think about it the same way, like, uh, you know how um, you have Bruce Wayne and Batman, right? And people that follow comics or whatnot, whatnot, they know that psychologically Batman is like the real person and Bruce Wayne is a person that he pretends to be. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. not the other way around. So that's kind of like how I felt. I felt like I was like this, this fucking superhero, this fucking Batman ready to beat people's ass. And when I was in public, 
I had to put on this this fake facade facade to to make other people comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think everyone does that to an extent as well. Yeah. Just like putting on, it just might be like when you're with your your veteran friends, like you don't need you're so comfortable with each other, you don't need that. Yeah, you're not gonna get mask. You're gonna you're, you're not yeah. gonna get looked at cross-eyed for coming yeah. up, you know, for that gallows humor, that dark humor because you're di- your face with yeah. death on a daily basis. Your 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 sense of humor and the things that you find funny are often very dark and can go there. But that shit's hilarious, right? I mean, when we talk about like, and this is hard for people to hear, but like that's why you get a little seventeen year old, eighteen year old kid who's taking a freaking sociology course, and you're like, oh yeah, I saw a fucking camel explode, dude. That shit was crazy, bro. It was fucking hilarious. It's fucking you know, blood everywhere, and <laughs> yeah. people are like, oh my. God god like what did he just yeah. say oh my god right. it's like get right. the fuck out of here no you need but that's why you uh, need that place you need that space to you know i always said it like this we needed to say we needed a safe space away from them because you know not only do you have former marines and you got you know you got grunts in there you got air force you got oftentimes a ranger rick who comes in there and is not a veteran at all who comes in there and is like you know he's got he's, he's like i was in the army i was in the air force and you're like oh and you're you're how old you're 22 wow man you got a long-standing career there it's just fun right, to right. to the grab ass and give shit to each other but you you have one civilian or you have one one professor say something cross and you got the whole weight of you know you got some war fighters at your fucking doorstep ready to ready to correct your uh, behavior. So um, it's aggressive in that, but it's also, that was our sort of training ground. And that's kind of how I saw it, right? That was our Mm. training ground to transition, to easily transition. And I love, Michael was so helpful with us. Uh, We were so glad we got to interview him before he left for Texas. But um, just being able to talk to him, um, touch base with Jose and and just a, a bunch of those guys who made impacts we all made impacts on each other in one way or another and we all went off to our various um uh fields of study and career paths but that that moment in time was so so integral in shaping us because we were allowed to fail we were allowed to we had this wonderful cheryl man freaking cheryl she she's since retired and and all that but she was my guardian angel man and a lot of people don't know this but like she i was i was homeless i was going to golden west and i was living out of my car at the time and um there's i wasn't the only one there's quite a few where we were a little rough around the edges and we were trying to get by the best that we could but cheryl would give you i mean anything she had she would give it to you whether it be you know toiletries or you know i would i would eat cup of noodles and canned vegetables for a little while but she was always there to pick you up. And those little guardian angels are put in your life for an, for a reason. And that act of service from the surrounding community who's so veteran friendly, you know, the, the local, um, what were they called, Jeffrey? The, um, the American Legion post there, but it was like the women. There was like a women's yeah. group that always brought us food and stuff. Um, yeah, I forgot their names, were but so, there was a few groups. Yeah, yeah there was a few groups that would make donations to the Veterans Resource Center, Yeah, uh, whether it be like toiletries, food, uh, school supplies, things of that nature. Right. Yeah, they just kept us they kept mm-hmm. us going, you know, they kept our morale going and by them showing support, no questions asked, it allowed us to fail freely, 
but to transition ourselves into working working veterans in our community and and in turn make sure that those veterans that were coming up behind us were treated the same way that we were you know because that was that was a really beautiful thing and and obviously and like you and and like matt is the same way um find a changing career path find that maybe you have something else to offer than just going going to the police force you know not knocking it at all you know for those people that are that are meant for it it's great but um yeah i think i feel like we have so much to offer based on our experience and based on how we adapt to things that now we have the freedom to if we have a bad leadership we have the freedom to freaking leave a job we have the freedom to tell people like look I, i'm coming from a place that's educated and that i i know what i'm talking about because i've seen this and this so um I, I I look back on those those years really fondly. Um, I'm really appreciative for um, just how it helped shape me. But um, explain a little bit if you can how because uh, we're kind of reaching the end. But explain if you can your uh, what you're doing now and what you found at Golden West that kind of put you in your current uh, career situation and career path. Sure. So um, while I was um, in Afghanistan, uh, I had a buddy of mine that was serving in uh, Motor T. His uh, MOS was uh, motor transport. So I'm sure when he enlisted in the Marine Corps, you know, he figured he'd just be a mechanic and just work on vehicles and whatnot. So uh, one day in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, there was a, a combat resupply. There was a resupply that needed to be done and they needed to uh, transport fuel from the main base over to one of these fobs. Um, so there's a, a large fuel truck that went with a convoy along with other resupplies. So, you know, food and, and things of that nature, um, ammunition, medical supplies. So while they're on this convoy, um, his vehicle excuse me, his Humvee um, ended up uh, hitting an IED and he ended up passing away. And for me, it was so frustrating because um, at the time, and even now to this day, the Marine Corps base in 29 Palms is per predominantly powered by solar panels. So if you go out to the Marine Corps base on 29 Palms, anybody that's stationed there knows exactly what I'm talking about. We have this huge solar um, array that provides power for the entire base and even a small portion of the city of 29 Palms. Um, now, when it comes to these forward observation bases, um, the, uh, the electricity that these bases get come from diesel generators, right? Because it's a reliable source of electricity. Um, to use solar panels for these forward observation bases, You'd have to have a solar array that's so large, it, it just wouldn't be practical for a war environment, right? One incoming mortar would take out the solars, game over. So, you know, I'm already passionate about the environment, but I was thinking like, if solar technology would advance, we would be able to come up with solar panels that number one are smaller and be able to produce more electricity, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in order for this um, solar technology to advance, there has to be a demand for that product, right? So I'm going to do what I can. I'm just going to do my little 10%. 
uh, to help push that industry forward, right? So if I can help increase solar sales, sales, that would uh, make more money go back into research and development. So solar panels can become more efficient, smaller, and then hopefully one day we wouldn't have to have diesel generators to fucking power these forward observation, forward observation bases and mm-hmm. Marines like that aren't even infantry, you know, they don't need to be transporting fucking diesel fuel to run these generators. Uh, so I ended up getting into the solar panel industry and it is, is in sales is rough. It's rough. You know, you either swim yeah. or you sink. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately that a uh, solar panel company got absorbed by um, an electric car company. So now I'm working for this electric car company and it's still in alignment with uh, my morals and values. Um, and it's still helping the environment. Um, so we're not out there using fossil fuels. So spoils of war doesn't have to be go towards, uh, you know, the spoils of war from Iraq was obviously crude oil. I'm not saying it's a product, product, predominant reason why we went to war in Iraq, but it definitely had a huge role of what we were doing out there, right? Absolutely. Uh, so it makes me feel good knowing that I'm helping our society transition away from fossil fuels and into more sustainable energy so the future generations don't have to deal with the type of wars that we we went through over natural resources, you know. But knowing mankind, we'll find something else to fight over. You know, like I'm about to come down there and get some of Brock's uh, uh, room service right now. I know you got some cheeseburgers over there. I'll fight you over that cheeseburger, Brock. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I just want to do my ten percent. <laughs> Do you know, do you know how far or how much I know solar panel technology tends to like double every, uh, the capacity doubles every two or four years, I think, as they're developing it, developing it. Do you, do you know how, um, do you know how far it's come since you were deployed? Um, I really don't, I don't have, uh, specs on that. Um, I do. Well, when I, Mm. I remember when I first started, um, solar panels were making about, uh, maybe 250 uh, to 285 uh, watts per panel. Um, now mm-hmm. I think they're above 400. So wow, they're like around 425 or something like that watts per panel. So wow. it's definitely making some advancements. Um, here in the state of California, uh, the governor has passed a law that all new homes that are being constructed have to be built with solar. And that's not to say oh, that wow. all homes that are sold have to have solar. Because, you know, there's obviously homes that have been mm. built a long time ago, but all new construction has to be built with solar. So I think that's huge um, as far as going to help Definitely. helping out the solar industry. It's going to be huge in help, helping reduce our carbon footprint. So mm. I think when it comes to that, people just have to be willing to step outside of their comfort zone and try new technology. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Figure it out as it as as we go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, there's always going to be the argument that um, when it comes to solar, you're going to be putting people out of work when it comes to like, uh, you know, the coal industry and things like that. Or some other industry, you're going to be putting somebody out of work if you um, adapt to to solar. 
But imagine when when Henry Ford made the Model T, and people were arguing, "Oh, that car is going to put uh, horse shoemakers out of work." You know, all these horse, all these. We need somebody to make these horseshoes. You know, it's mm. like, man, you, you can't you can't hold on to the past that hard. You know, mm. and these people aren't necessarily going to be put out of work. They just need to be retrained. You know, mm. that guy that was making horseshoes. Absolutely. Well, instead of making horseshoes, teach them how to change a tire. You know, there teach you them how to yeah. uh, do an oil change. So all these people that are in the coal industry, they're not necessarily out of work. They just need to be retrained. You know, teach them how to install mm. solar panels on homes. Just, they just need to be retrained. You know, we have to find uh, cleaner ways to to have power. Sources of energy that are, are renewable. You know, sun's not going anywhere. Last time I checked, it, yeah. it comes up every single day. So are we going to harness this power or just let it go to waste? You know? Yeah, especially as our, like, our uh, nuclear plants are starting to reach the end of their their half-life. Right. And then what's going to happen with all that? Being able to provide power. What's going to happen with all that nuclear waste? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Uh, imagine yeah. you went to your friend's house, right? And uh, you went over there for a dinner party. And he had kerosene lamps on the tables. You'd be like, dude, what the hell are you doing with these kerosene lamps? You know, we got electricity <laughs> nowadays. Don't you know that that stuff's dangerous? You can knock one of those lamps over and burn your whole damn house down. That's yeah. how I want people to feel about not having solar panels on their home. Like, how come you don't have mm. solar? That's ridiculous. That's just as ridiculous as having a kerosene yeah. lamp. Yeah. You know, you're using old technology. Yeah. So, yes, we have an abundance of natural gas, and some of the uh, the uh, uh, electrical plants nowadays are using compressed natural gas to make their um, electricity, but that's that's a resource that can be depleted and the fracking process yeah. that goes into getting that that natural gas there's a really interesting documentary called gasland um that's out mm. i actually saw it on netflix initially um but you know things on netflix that they, they come and go they can only you know have so many movies on their platform um mm. but you can actually yeah. catch the entire documentary yeah. on uh youtube is G A S L A N D. Um, it starts off super slow. It moves about the, the speed of molasses in the winter. Um, so, but if you're patient, it's so <laughs> informative. It's so eye opening as far as like how mm. bad the fracking process is for for our environment when it comes to natural gas. So, I mean, absolutely, we only have one planet to live on. Yep. How it affects it affects everything else too. It trickles down and affects. It affects how our water tables are set. It mm -hmm. affects how irrigation works. It causes um, tons of mini earthquakes in Colorado and, too. What, in certain it, areas. It, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It makes it unstable essentially. And it's like we can't bleed it dry. We gotta figure out we gotta figure out how to make it economical, right? We gotta figure out how to bring that cost down and um <clears throat> make it uh I mean it's just like the electric car, right? It's just like Tesla. We gotta figure out a way to make it um, commonplace, you know, everything change is not always easy, but when we start, um, when we start when it's widespread and it kind of takes off, you know, there's no stopping it. So we kind of need to get to that point, like you said, with, um, with, uh, leaving, leaving fracking and, and natural gas and all that kind of stuff, leaving that and, and kind of opening up other resources, other areas in which we can, uh, power our, our, our machine here.
Um, but it's, uh, I, I, I love getting to this point too, because I love kind of reflecting. Um, it's kind of what this, this is the whole point of the podcast is about, right? It's just to be able to reflect on your service and, and reflect on your life and decisions you made or didn't make and how they ended up getting you here. Um, Jeffrey, I want to know what, um, what organization besides maybe like the, the VA or, or anything else, but maybe what organization or what group of people helped you in your transition to kind of realize your full potential? Um, you know, we, there's a lot of stigmas against, um, some of those nonprofits out there and the VA as a whole. Um, but I, I just want to know so that we can pass on, you know, we're, we're trying to give that lifeline to the next veteran and help them. Um, what, who, what group was it that kind of helped you in your, uh, in your transition out into uh, the man you are now? Uh, be honest with you. It really was the veterans resource center at golden West college. Um, so what I'm saying about that is it's very important in my personal opinion uh, for uh, veterans that are freshly transitioning from the military over to the civilian sector to surround themselves with other veterans um, to, in order to give yeah. your make give yourself some sense of normality. Right. Uh, one of the challenges that I had when I first got out was and not to be redundant because I know we kind of spoke on this already. But uh, one of my challenges was being surrounded by civilians that um, I felt uncomfortable speaking freely around. So when I was at the Veterans Resource Center, it helped me to be around people that I could be comfortable with, right? So I was essentially killing two birds with one stone. I was, number one, using the resources that I had earned, um, you know, from the GI Bill, which really helped me as well. Um, the, the GI Bill, I was using the, the, uh, the post-9-11 GI Bill, which uh, not only paid for my tuition, but also gave me a housing allowance. So I was able to pay for my apartment complex, uh, or my apartment unit and, and buy groceries. I didn't have to work at the time. Uh, that, and that's one of the benefits of the, the GI Bill. It helps you to focus on school and give you that allowance uh, so you don't have to get a part-time job. But even if it's not the, the school in Golden West, nowadays, uh, a lot of schools have some type of Veterans Resource Center on their campus. So if you're a veteran just coming out of the military and you're looking to get into school or already in school and you haven't gone to your veterans resource center for whatever reason there's some veterans that don't want to go down there because they think oh it's just going to be a bunch of old vets um, talking about war stories and stuff like that and, and it's not always like that a lot of times it's just you know other veterans taking classes also and giving you the scoop on which bio course is going to be a good biology course to take and which professor is notoriously difficult, you know, which English class is a good English class to take and which one is a waste of time. You know, we're, we're helping each other yeah. out. It's a great place to go. And it's a great place where you can feel normal. Mm -hmm. For me, hearing stories about uh, other veterans and what they were going through helped me to understand, oh, is I'm not, I'm not going crazy. Somebody else is dealing with the same not issue. Alone, yeah. I'm not alone. Other people have the yeah. same exact issues that that they're dealing with. So it it really exactly. really helped me out a lot. So just surround yourself with other courses. 
it reinforces that buddy system and that camaraderie and it really is important and hopefully hopefully what will trickle down is the fact is we'll, we'll get into these jobs at the va the the you know the structure and the and the the stigma in the va is that they don't know what we're talking about you come in there and you're talking to a doctor who has no former military service and a nurse who maybe just sees it as like a step up project you know she's just using the va so that she can get a better job at a private private sector job um I really do think the government needs to like subsidize, like make it, make it worthwhile, make the VA and they're, they're slowly starting to do that, you know, put funds back into investing and educating. I mean, there's a huge VA, the VA um, healthcare scandal, how they went to all um, electronic basically. Uh, and I watched it and, and, and I watched it on CSNBC or whatever the, you know, the, where they <clears throat> on the Capitol, on Capitol Hill, when they're talking about this stuff, but these people that are the decision makers and stuff, they are, they are, they might just be word service, but they are truly expressing, outwardly expressing that they want the inherent problems within the VA to change and for the VA to be more transparent, completely transparent so that they can say where these funds are going to and allocate funds for new technology. And by putting veterans in there who have dealt with that, who have navigated you know, the trials and, and sort of the, the low points and the high points, putting them in those jobs allows them to intake other, other veterans and tell them like, you don't need this kind of the same thing, the same model with, with school. It's like, you know, you don't want this professor. They're not really veteran friendly. They don't get it. Um, it kind of crosses over to the VA where it's like, no, don't go see the specialist. The specialist is right up your alley, mm -hmm. you know, or introducing areas of, of therapy that are new and, um, so we can get away from overprescribing veterans and making them numb because making them numb is not always best. Cause if you're numb, you can't deal with the pain, right? You're not, you're not dealing with the, the, the thing at hand that's, that's inherently, you know, affecting you. So finding you're other ways you're halting to, the processing. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're halting the process. So and, that's a, that's a big part of it. I think. Absolutely. And I think that it's, it's equally important to, um, give credit where credit is due, you know? Um, we, we've all heard stories about um, corrupt police officers, you know, beating up somebody or shooting an unarmed black man or whatever the case. That's not to say that all cops are like that. We have tons of great cops out there that do great work that are out there to really help their community, right? The same thing could be said about the VA. The exact same thing could be said about the VA. Like we've heard the horror stories about the VA, about you know, some person getting mis mistreated, but that's not to say that all VA hospitals are like that. You know, let's not uh, generalize. Uh, I've been uh, a patient at the VA hospital in Long Beach for quite some time, just recently transferred to the VA hospital in, in Riverside, and the VA has always been good to me. So I think that um, as veterans, um, I think that it is incredibly important to give the VA credit where credit is due Yes, they've had some horror stories that the media will be quick to share, but how many amazing, uh, how many times have they, you know, really went out above and beyond and helped veterans that you never hear about, you know? So I think that it's, it's very important that um, us as veterans, um, not that we haven't been appreciative, but I think it's incredibly important to give credit where credit is due. And um, uh, I'll say that, yeah. you know, the veteran, the, the VA has always been good to me, you know? I got full health care there. 
I get my cholesterol medication there because yeah. I can't get this gut down, but that's another story. But <laughs> <laughs> your boy likes cheeseburgers. What service, am I going to do? You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. But, I like my cheeseburgers. Better. But Stop. at the same time, you know, the, the VA has the largest budget right after the, the um, National Defense, right? Department of Defense. Um, so I think, yeah. uh, oh, what I was going to say is, what I wanted to say is, I think that um, it's just extremely important that our generation, because uh, for a long time, there, there was a disconnect between uh, the VA employees and veterans, right? Because back in the day, um, I, I love my old school vets, but I think a lot of times back in the day, or even sometimes currently, um, there are some vets that go in there and start giving the, the VA staff a hard time, you know? And, and start treating them that, like you're still a fucking colonel and you're talking to one of your, your E3s. Like, no, this person is not your fucking Lance Corporal. They're not your private. Stop talking to them like that. This is a nurse that's trying to help you out yeah. and start giving her the respect that she deserves. Yeah. You know, so I think that we could do a better job yeah, right. as far as how well we treat some of the, the VA staff. And I think if we did that, you know, that. Uh, they, they would start yeah. treating us a little bit better. So... <clears throat> If we're not fucking careful, mm-hmm. it can become a us versus us versus them thing the way it may have been in the past. You know, yeah. so it's extremely important that we recognize that these people are here to help us and we need to talk to them with the dignity and respect that they've earned. You know, a lot of those people aren't. Fuck- There's a lot of veterans that work for the VA. There's a lot of civilians that work for the VA, too. And those people are doing it out of the kindness of their heart. You know, so let's recognize that. Yeah. Well, um, I guess before we wrap it up here, uh, I, uh, the question I like to ask is, um, you know, after you came back, I know you said you, you had a year to, uh, decompress. Um, was there anything, uh, any like, um, anything specific you noticed uh, when you came up, when you came back and it might've been after your, your first deployment, even, um, anything different about your experience of civilian society, uh, and just like, um, anything you noticed or, uh, a a change in, in your experience of things that maybe you, um, you either, you, you didn't question or, or something before. I know something I've heard is like, uh, uh, that, small talk is weird when you come back from like a combat zone. It just is, is, uh, is something that civilians do. That's like, what, like what the, this is, this is pointless kind of, I'm curious about your experience of that. Uh, for me, uh, oh man, some of the things that I just noticed was so many opportunities here in America that I took for Mm. granted, um, before I I enlisted in the Marine Corps. I remember, um, I'll never forget when we were coming back from, uh, Iraq, um, you know, I saw the hardships um, that a lot of people were going through. You know, that's their normal life in, in Iraq. You know, not having electricity 24 hours a day provided mm-hmm. by the government, not having clean drinking water sometimes, uh, not having air condition um, and dealing with 130 degree heat and having an infant, a baby to take care of, you know. Mm-hmm. And then on yeah. the way home, you know, coming from uh, March Air Force Base or on the free or on a bus, um, on the freeway, headed back to the Marine Corps base. And on the freeway, 
I'm noticing the shopping mall, Walmart, Target. It's just mm. like resource after resource. You know, it's just the freedoms mm. that that people are just going and coming as they please. And it's like the abundance, I guess. The yeah. things that I took for granted, you know, before mm. the service. Never had really traveled before. The most traveling I did outside of America was like to Canada, and that doesn't count. That's like mm. America Part Two. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, so it was like to me it was a real eye opener you know going to a third world country and and seeing you know how how many resources we take for granted coming home and just turning on the light switch and knowing that the electricity will be there curling your toes in the carpet you know i went to houses out there in iraq where the house would be completely built and had a dirt floor inside the house they'd be like mm-hmm. what the heck or going into a house to be completely built and there'd be no ceiling. Like all walls, all mm. floors, everything's all done and literally no ceiling on the house. So wow. just the, the opportunities that we have here in America, don't take them for granted. You know, if you, if you haven't used your GI bill yet, go get your education, man. I don't care how old you are. You know, you may think, Oh, I've had my career. It's not too late. Yeah. And even if it's not to, to get a new career, like it's not necessarily it's the pursuit of a career. Do, do it just to gain knowledge. You know, mm-hmm. have you ever been interested in pottery? Go down to your local community college, use your GI Bill, take a pottery course in the summer. Take some kind of art mm-hmm. course, learn to, yeah. learn to paint. You know, the, the amount of opportunities that we have. Take an acting, take an class. acting class. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You never know. You never know when something you unwrap is going to unveil something that you've mm-hmm. been missing deep in you, you know, d- something that speaks to your soul. And a lot of times art, art therapy or adventure therapy, we talk to a lot of vets who they just relish being outdoors, you know, being outdoors and on a hike is is now it's re it's redefined because before they were they were, you know, on deployment and freaking on, on patrols and stuff could get shot at any time. Now they don't have that fear. So they're reconnecting with nature in a whole new light and it unveils things to them that, that they otherwise wouldn't have, you know, if they hadn't taken that extra step. And a lot of times it's because they hit rock bottom. A lot of times it's because they were self-medicating, they were drinking too much and, you know, stories old as time. And, they they had to do something different outside their norm so they find whatever it is within themselves that they that speaks to their soul when everything's the quietest and you know a lot of times it's faith a lot of times it's a mixture of a lot of things but it's so important it's so important that we talk about that and that we urge other veterans um especially those who are getting out you know and even the old guys too you know the the veterans who are a little salty like us you know we've been out for a little while it's not too late, man. We owe it to the to young kids who are getting out to to be able to pass on that knowledge as well and to encourage them to stay connected and stay stay humble, you know, but stay respectful as well. You know, we we earned certain things, but um success is is defined in many different ways. And um I what better way than to to help help a brother who is in need, you know, help a brother or sister out there in arms who it was in need and our civilian counterparts too. our civilian counterparts there. You can ask, start a conversation. You know, if you're a young kid in college and you, you see a, 
a veteran sitting next to you. He's he's wearing a, uh, you know, a memorial bracelet. You know, ask him, but but you know, a, tread carefully, but create a create a dialogue here. That's what we're trying to do: create dialogue and and um, so that no man is left behind because we don't we don't want any more people taking their lives. People deal with it every single day, you know, civilians included. But we don't we don't want that. We want to be able to um, bridge those gaps. So, um, yeah, I know I can speak for for everybody, but I just thank you for your service, Jeffrey. It's just it's it's so great to like talk to you again, man. To re- to catch up again. Um, I uh, we're pretty. You said that you're in the Riverside area, Correct. right now. Yeah, I miss. Okay. I miss, yeah, I'm in uh, Pasadena. I miss 29 well. Palms so much. I had to, you know, come back to some type of desert city. <laughs> I was say, yeah, yeah. It, you know, you're out my way right now, man. I'm in Palm <clears> Springs, oh, is that right? So. I'm sorry. Got a nice there you go. Here. Uh, you know, um, no, nah, man. But uh, re- we really appreciate you, brother, and and thank you for your service and. Um, just, uh, just for being so open and, and uh, contrite and forthright. No I just one last quick thing um, that I want to say to any veterans that are out there listening. Um, if if you've served and you have some type of disability, um, please do not have the mindset of, I don't want to file the disability claim because I don't want to milk the system. Uh, please, yeah. please don't have that mindset. Like you, you served your country with honor. Um, go out there, go to the VA, um, get connected with the VA and hopefully file for a disability yeah. claim. Um, there are, you've yeah. earned it at the end of the day. And you you deserve uh, to, to, to take care of yourself. There's so many politicians that are out there or, or elected officials that are abusing their position and taking, you know, flights that are paid for uh, by the taxpayers to go on vacations and to get extravagant furniture for their fucking offices and all kinds of crazy shit like that. And going to expensive restaurants, like they didn't fucking earn that shit. So if they can exploit the yeah. fucking taxpayer money, at least you can uh, receive the uh, the proper care and treatment that you've earned, that you've rightfully earned. So That's please right. connect with the VA yep. and, and just go talk to them and start asking questions. Yeah, they'll point you in the right direction. Definitely, I'm going through that right now where they're re- readjusting my... Uh, readjusting my paperwork and my percentage but um you know when you when you get the higher percentages too you you're available for more care to be covered at the va and that's that's really something that is that goes kind of unset and it's not because the stigma is i'm going to tough it out and be bigger than Mm -hmm. this bigger than this back pain don't do that get taken care of man those resources are there they're literally being untapped they're untapped resources Mm -hmm. for you and um it's not milking the system. It's, it's, it's making sure that you can take care of you and your family first so that you can in turn pass, pass along that information and pass the buck to somebody else. Um, yeah. and it's there for a reason, like you said, man. So exactly. Amen, brother. Thank you. Guys for <laughs> thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure. My man. It's me. been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your service. And, uh, thanks for like Brock said, being so open and willing to talk. Oh, no worries. Yeah. Anytime. If you guys, uh, Welcome anytime. If you guys man. ever need anybody again, I'm more than happy to assist, man. Great time talking with you. Hundred percent, man. We'd love to love to catch up sometime, man. Um, in person. Things are opening back up. So the door is always open, man. We'd love to love to catch up with you. I know Matt would too. Um, 
I was talking about Jose, talking to Jose the other day when we were talking to him and uh, get a get a little golf game going or something if you swing the sticks. Uh, Absolutely. That'd be fun. Hell yeah. Um, well, that's Jeffrey for us. I, I, I know Matt is probably listening from afar, but uh, for our listeners out there too, if you know a veteran, like we said earlier, if you know a veteran and um, you think uh, they would benefit by telling their story, please don't hesitate to reach out to us at uh, Foxhole Podcast on Instagram, uh, the Foxhole Theater Company, um, who had just became a 5013C. So uh, big things happening for the podcast, for the theater company. Um, until next time, thank you for diving in the Foxhole. Thank you to everyone for being in the Foxhole with us today. Please follow us on Instagram at Foxhole Stories. And for our listeners out there who are veterans and compelled to tell their story, please visit us at foxholestories.com forward slash contact. Finally, if you are a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, please call the Veteran Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255 or send a text to 838-255. This support is free and available 24-7. Hello, listeners. We here at the Foxhole Podcast are so grateful for your continued support and listens. Because we love you, we've made you a special discount code for our upcoming play, The Ninth Door. The discount code ROGER takes $10 off the $20 ticket price. So remember, if you're in LA this October, come by The Ninth Door and remember that discount code, ROGER. Nine doors, nine men, one mission. Hello, Brock. Hey, Matt. What are you going to be doing for the weekends in October? Well, I'm going to be um, watching a lot of football, some Dodgers baseball, working on my Halloween costume. I'm going as Joe Exotic oh, Okay, this I get year. it. I, yeah, but what else are you going to be doing? Hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am going to be performing in the Foxhole Theater Company's new play, The Ninth Door. Yes, The Ninth Door, exactly, and so am I. Uh, I will be playing Private Yates, a young Marine haunted by one day in Afghanistan. And I'm playing Lance Corporal Beauvoir, a gay veteran who struggled throughout his life with identity and fitting in. So let me ask you guys, our faithful listeners, are you faithful viewers? Are you Foxhole Podcast fans? Well, then you're going to love the Ninth Door. Seriously, follow the link in the description <laughs> and we'll see you there. We'll see you there.